Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that prayer of supplication. And uh, thank you, Pastor Mark. I get used to saying that now. I noticed on the bottom of our worship guide, we have an addition to our pastoral team. And those of you that were here Wednesday night for our church conference, we were delighted to extend a call to uh, Pastor Mark Andrews as a member of our pastoral team. And we appreciate so much the ministry that he and Amy have already had and continue to have in the midst of our Cornerstone family. And so continue to pray for them as well as the other members of the pastoral team as we seek God's wisdom and lead in the church. This morning we're going to continue in the series out of the Psalms uh, that I've just conveniently entitled Life Lessons from Psalms. I hope indeed that some of the the principles and, and truths that we glean from God's Word out of these marvelous writings given to us under the inspiration of God's Spirit, that these are, these are indeed principles that we can apply to our lives. And as we look at Psalm 57, a psalm uh, written by David, attributed to David for authorship, to the chief musician, set to the title, Do Not Destroy, which some scholars believe to have been a popular hymn or tune, that they used to set the uh, words of this psalm to sing. And that's not the first time that tunes have been borrowed to put to, to songs. We see that throughout the history of music. And then also it's a mictum. In other words, it's, it's a writing that I think this debate about schol- among scholars is what that means. But, but what I find, I think, consistently is it's a psalm that is, is it's, it's a, a holy inscription a saying that was passed along and passed along and, and permanent. And so um, if you have other definitions of mictum, you, you're welcome to follow that. The, if you've ever been shunned, ostracized, um, or treated harshly, or neglected because of your faith in Christ, because of your Christian convictions, uh, you can identify with David. Uh, if you've ever been treated unjustly by others simply because you are a faithful follower, a Bible-believing Christian, then you, you can identify with David to be treated unjustly because of your faith. And so as we look at Psalm 57 today, uh, I, I, I want you to know that this is one that you can identify with and, and you can identify with David and, and there are plenty of other Christians, I'm sure, around. I'm almost hesitant to complain about being ostracized or, or shunned or treated unfairly for my faith in Christ because that's so insignificant and so mild compared to what my brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in other parts of the world, in other cultures where they're being herded up for their faith and arrested and their property sold and their Families being sold into slavery or they're being tortured and they're being imprisoned and they're being killed because of their faith. How, how am I going to complain because a neighbor doesn't want to be friendly with me because all of a sudden they found out I'm a Christian? But still, again, those are feelings that are real. And so you might identify with David. This is one of the, a number of Psalms that would fit under the category of lamentation. And a psalm of lamentation typically begins with expressing distress to God for the treatment that others are giving you because of your faith 
or circumstances that may seem unfair that are coming against you. And how many among us today could confess that there have been times in your life as a Christian you've looked up towards heaven and said, Why, God? Why? Why me? Why this? Why them? And so, but typically lamentations like Psalm 57, and interestingly enough, the previous Psalm, Psalm 56, which is in that same category, a Psalm of lamentation, they typically end with praising the Lord. So you may start out on a, on a, a, subtle, a subtle note of, 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 of being you know, mistreated, maybe a morbid kind of a uh, mood, but, but then it elevates to praise as you move along. The occasion for the Psalm uh, typically, you would find back in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, the historical book of 1 Samuel, and it's the time period in which David has been anointed king of Israel. Now, I emphasize, he is anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel, but he's not yet the king, because we know that King Saul is still on the throne. Unfortunately for Saul, though, he chose to be impatient and, uh, and going against the instructions of the teachings of God's word. He chose to offer an offering instead of waiting on Samuel to come and offer it. And so Samuel shows up on the scene and rebukes King Saul. But that was mild compared to what God was going to do. Because God would cut him off. Cut him off from the, from the throne. Not only Saul, but all of his family. And, and then God removed his anointed spirit from Saul and instead placed a very tormenting spirit, an unsettling spirit that would drive King Saul virtually insane. Insane with jealousy over David and suspicion of David. And so what you find in 1 Samuel, particularly in chapter 22, 23, 24, is David is, is a fugitive. Now mind you, he's the, he's the anointed king of Israel, bonafide by the prophet Samuel. But yet again, he's a fugitive. I mean, running for his life. From an insane, jealous king who is seeking to kill him. Now, the, the psalm is written from the, a cave. It says, in fact, in the title the, uh, to the psalm, a victim of David, when he fled from Saul into the cave. Now, there are a number of caves in Israel, particularly in the region around the Dead Sea. And so if we were looking at Psalm, I mean, uh, 1 Samuel 22, then it could be that uh, cave of Adullam where David fled initially and his family came to him and that's where he began to gather his gathering of about 400 people who sympathized with him. And then, or it could be maybe a couple chapters later in 1 Samuel 24 when David seeks to hide in a cave in the region there around the Dead Sea known as Engedi. And there were a number of caves in that foreboding desert region and David was in one of those caves as well. We know on one occasion when Saul was hot on his heels, David and his followers darted into this cave there in, in Gedi and back into the recesses of the cave, hiding. And lo and behold, King Saul came into the cave, unaware that they were in the cave further back in the darkness. And just to show the humor of God's providential orchestration, uh, King Saul goes into the cave to 
relieve himself. It was a rest stop. And so David and his men were there in the same cave. The king's vulnerable, you might say. And, and his, David's men are whispering, get, get him now. It's, it's, it's perfect. God has delivered him into your hands. You can kill him with his pants down. Yeah. But David, of course, wouldn't do that because in David's mind, this was still the anointed of God. David did cut off a portion of his robe, sneaked up behind him, and cut off a portion of King Saul's robe. And then after the king had left, David would stand on a hillside across from the king and his army and say, Hey, king, just in case you're thinking that I'm an enemy of yours, just in case you're thinking I'm trying to kill you, and I'm trying to understand why in the world you're trying to kill me because I'm one of your friends. And to prove it, king, here's a portion of your robe. If I got close enough to cut it off with my sword, guess what? I could have killed you, king. So in, in, in that cave, David wrote this psalm, if you will. In fact, some of the scholars have said that David probably wrote more of his psalms. More of his psalms were probably originated and composed in the context of these caves where he found shelter than in the comfort of the palace later as a king. Because these were very deep and moving and faith-generating moments in the life of the king of Israel, David. Well, as we move into the the, the psalm itself and look at the text and, and, and what it has to say to you and I, I'd like to offer a point to ponder or a lesson to learn. When God's people face hardships, when God's people face hardships with faith, they are comforted and the Lord is glorified. When you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, face hardships, and brother, sister, you have, you are, or you will. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when those times of difficulty and hardship and pain come your way and my way, then by faith we will be able to find comfort. Our faith in God will give us comfort. But get this, that's not the main point. The main purpose of being comforted is that you and I may glorify God. So our hardships come our way when we are faithful. Now granted, God will chastise us He will allow painful things to come into our lives when we are rebellious and disobedient to Him. But also understand, God, knowing all things and being sovereign and providential, will allow painful things to come into your life and my life. And yes, even painful people. But ultimately, when we exercise our faith and trust in God, He gets the glory. So, Is that the purpose of your life? As you face difficult times, do you stop and think? You see, I I like, I think, how Dr. Charles Stanley put it one time in one of his messages talking about facing difficulty in life. He says we always ask the wrong question. When something that is puzzling to us and seemingly unfair to us happens to us, painful or whatever, we typically want to ask why. He submitted that the question we need to be asking really is what? What is it, Lord, that you have allowed this to happen in my life? What is it that you are seeking to accomplish in my life? 
What is it that you want to accomplish through this experience in my life as I trust you that will bring glory to you? Lord, I want to know because I want to get the maximum out of this experience for your glory. Don't let me waste the pain. Please, Lord. What is it you want to do? Now, I don't know if that's the question David asked, but I guarantee you his faith and trust was ultimately in God. As we look at verse 1 of Psalm 57... First of all, consider the believer's plea. And David represents believers in God. And, and, the, and the plea that David offers here is a similar plea. It's not a unique plea. When he starts out there, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever asked God for mercy? Just under great duress and pain and difficulty, just said, oh Lord, be merciful to me. Well, you're not by yourself. And this is not the first time that David has uttered this. In fact, you can just back up one chapter, one psalm. Back to Psalm 56. And look there with me in verse 1. And what does he say? Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. So David understands what it means to be in going through difficulty. And this is a, a common expression. In fact, all the way back to towards the beginning of the psalms in Psalm 6 in verse 2, you'll find him saying again, and this is David again, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. So in difficult times, it's not uncommon. It's a similar plea that people who are God's people and believers in God will offer. But it's also a simple plea. Have mercy on me, Lord. Oh, have mercy on me, O Lord. You know, the Lord's not impressed with the volume or the eloquence of our prayers. I mean, you can pray long, elegant prayers if that makes you feel better. But I got newsflash. God's not up there grading you and say, oh, that was an A-plus prayer. <laughs> lots of big words and oh, lots of dials and these. King James, hallelujah. I'll give him some extra points. <laughs> God's not impressed how intellectual we sound to him in our praying. It's simple prayers. Like, oh, Lord, be merciful to me. If that's what it takes, if that's what you're going through in the moment, I think about the parable that Jesus taught in Luke's Gospel in chapter 18. And you're, I'm sure, familiar. When Jesus was talking about praying, he was talking about the publican, which is a tax collector, and the Pharisee gathered at the temple complex and they're praying on one hand, the Pharisees praying this very boastful, arrogant, self-centered prayer. Oh God, I'm so thankful that I'm dedicated to you and I'm faithful and I tithe and I oh, follow the laws. And oh God, I'm so thankful that I'm a dedicated you know, uh, a follower of you. Uh, I'm so grateful, Lord, that I'm not like, not like this tax collector over here. Wicked, sinful wretch that he is. And yet Jesus said the publican, the tax collector couldn't even look up towards heaven in his humility. He's beating his chest. And his prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, now, which prayer do you think God heard? And of course, the rhetorical answer is that simple, heartfelt prayer of the publican who was praying. And you know, I think about as Christians today, as we look around us and we see how bad things are happening to good people, and you see the 
things like the shooting of the church in Charleston not too long ago and, and, and the brutal persecutions of Christians, as I insinuated earlier, that are being inflicted on them by radical uh, Islamic terrorists. And, and, and I apologize, Raymond, maybe I shouldn't use radical. But those who are violent and who are following those teachings of Islam. Listen, you know, what, what a terrible thing. And I think about the testimony of these Christians. So many of them refused to recant their faith. And I think about the Christian families of those individuals who were shot in that Charleston church and how quick they were to offer forgiveness to the man that came in and killed their loved ones. The world can't understand that. But you see, it's a matter of faith and trusting in God in a horrible time in our lives. So this plea that is offered is a similar plea. It's a simple plea to God. And that's what God is looking for. But let's look forward at the, at the believer's pronouncement as we look at verse 2. And we'll v- revisit verse 1. But look at verse 2. The psalmist David says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth His mercy and His truth. And I want you to see in this pronouncement of faith that David is uttering here, this speaks volumes about his faith in God and his trust in God and his confidence in God. In fact, if you simply backed up into verse 1, look what David says. He says, For my soul trusts in you. Have mercy on me, but my soul, Lord, I want to make it clear, my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. You hear the confidence, his confidence in God's protection. And oftentimes you'll see the metaphor of wings as if a, a, a mother a hen or bird would, would cover her brood, her chicks with her wings. I remember reading a story Several years ago, a firefighter out in the West or Midwest where they were fighting a, a big wildfire and they were coming along the charred remains of the landscape of this massive fire had gone, gone through the timberland. And, and this one firefighter said he came upon a very unusual scene at a burned out tree. At the very base of the tree, there was a quail. And it, and it, was, it, it was just... Like it, it was obviously burned and, it, and its wings were spread out and it was stiff and, and, and it had been burned to death. And he thought it was so interesting. Why did a bird fly away? To protection. And out of curiosity, he got a stick and he reached up under the, the, the body of that quail and he turned it over and underneath, to his surprise, were still alive a brood of baby chicks. And her mother, had, in, the, in that fierce moment of the fires, had spread her wings over her chick and, chicks and given her life to protect her innocent babies through that terrible fire. I thought about how God spreads His wings over His people, those who are dependent upon Him and trust in Him, and how it was that Jesus gave His life to protect us from the harsh and deadly penalty of our sins. Of course, Jesus uses another image in John's Gospel in chapter 10. He talks about himself as a good shepherd 
And he, and he says, and the good shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know the shepherd. They hear my voice, and they follow me. And he goes on to say that those that the Father puts in my hand. He said, no one in no wise shall snatch them out of my hand. Once God has placed them into my hands, then Jesus says, I give them everlasting life. I give them eternal life. You know, we don't so much talk about being under the wing of God but we sure talk about being in God's hands, don't we? And how comforting it is, is to me as a follower of the Lord to know that even when I'm being ostracized for my faith or when harsh and difficult and unfair things happen in my life, I know that I am safe and secure in the hands of the Savior who allowed His hands to be pierced on the cross to pay the price for my sins. Even as little children, we were taught to sing, He's got the whole world in his hands and the psalmist says I know that I am in your care under your wings and you are my refuge but we also see his confidence not only in God's protection but we see his confidence in God's power listen in a time of disaster a war I would think that most Americans would look to, the, to Washington, D.C. I know, maybe not with as much confidence as we once did, but, but still again, when a nation is under attack, you typically look to the capital because for us as Americans in Washington, D.C., that represents the ultimate authority of the land. The ultimate legislative power, the ultimate judicial authority, the ultimate executive authority. The highest authority is represented in those buildings that has historically stood in Washington, D.C. But we as Christians, we as God's people, we as believers like David, we understand that's man's authority. There is a higher authority. There is a higher power that we put our trust in. And David names him right there in verse 2. He says, I will cry out to God most high. David didn't just randomly pick that name, brothers and sisters. That's one of the Hebrew names of God, El Elyon, which says God's elevation. He is high and lifted up. He is sovereign. He is above all power, all authority. He is God Almighty. He is the most high. There is none who rival him in power and authority. And notice that David says, I'll cry out to you, El Elyon. To God who performs all things for me. And he understood that God had the power to back up all of his promises. He also places his confidence not only in God's protection and in God's power, but you see he places his, his confidence in God's ability of, to be faithful to him. Faithful to deliver him. Look what he says in verse 3. He shall sin from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. I think about over in the book of Daniel. There, uh, uh, chapter 3, I believe it is, when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed, and Abednego were refusing to bow down to the graven image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar was, was fierce and, and, and told them that if they didn't bow down, he was going to throw them into the fiery furnace. And of course, he ended up throwing them into the fiery furnace. And, and he's watching, thinking that these Hebrew boys are going to get just burned up in an instant. But lo and behold, they've got fireproof britches. They're walking around in there unexplicably. They're not even being harmed. They're walking around 
around, yet there's a fourth one in the fire with him, and he says, hey, it looks like the Son of God. But I like Nebuchadnezzar's declaration after that. After he got him out of the furnace. This is the pagan king. And listen to what he says about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always want to say, to bed we go. <laughs> he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For he has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. It got the king's attention. Why, why were they so confident? Because they knew the same thing David knew. They knew that El Elyon, the Most High God, was able to deliver them. David knew that too. And that's what he's saying there. So what does it say to contemporary 21st century Christians today? I'll tell you what it says. You can trust God. You are under His protection. Once you belong to Him, no one can remove you from His sovereign protection. You are a child of God. You belong to Him. He is powerful. He will protect you. And yes, He will deliver us. Because He is God. As we move further and look in the chapter of Psalm 57, verse 4 through 6, I want to introduce to you what I call the believer's predicament. The believer's predicament. To, to really understand the feelings and the, the expressions that David has given us here, you, you almost have to go back to 1 Samuel in chapter 23. And, and this is when Saul is chasing after David and Saul's got his big army and David is, is running with his band of men. and it's, it's almost like a, a cat and mouse thing. It's almost like a dog and rabbit thing, you know, of, of, of being chased. Let me just read just a brief excerpt. In, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 23, when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, uh, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he, uh, heard that, he perceived, pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. So you, you can almost see it, the intensity. It's not like David was halfway across the country. Hey, at some points they were in the same location and they were on the run. They were constantly on the run. What a, what a predicament he found himself in. David finds himself in the midst of a fiery adversary, a madman, if you will. If you stop and think about the condition of King Saul at that time, he was totally unreasonable and he was totally consumed with hate for David. Look, listen how David describes that in the, in the language that he does in verse 4. He said, My soul is among lions. And you'll find a similar reference to this in Psalm 17, 12. He says, My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, that is, with anger, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp word. You get the picture? David is saying, listen, my enemy is not just somebody that's upset with me. Here's a dangerous and a treacherous man who's like a wild lion. Sometimes when I'm on the treadmill in the mornings, I, flip, I get tired of the news and I'll flip around the channels. And I like to go to the animal channel, the animal planet. And I like to watch if it hits at the right time, big cats. That's like lions and, and leopards and... Yeah. And I'll tell you something. When it's hunting time, 
There's nothing gentle about one of those lines. And ladies, the women lines, lines are worse than the male lines. I know the guys are saying, right, preach it, brother. But anyway, I mean, when they stalk their enemy, whether it be a wildebeest or a zebra or one of those antelope, you know, they don't just run up there and knock him down. Oh, no, those big old fangs and claws, well, I better stop there. But you get the picture. David says, I am among those people who are like hungry, vicious lions seeking to just tear us apart. That's the, that's the extent of the ravenous hatred that they have towards me and so as we look at this I think about people today you and I Christians today God's people today face an equally ravenous foe it's, it's, it's in the New Testament the, the Apostle Peter warns us he said be, in, in 1 Peter 5 8 be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour Listen, Satan is vicious. Our spiritual adversary, he doesn't want to just embarrass you. He doesn't want to just uh, uh, inconvenience you. I promise you, that's what Peter's saying. He's stalking you and he's seeking those that he may devour, shred, destroy. Now we don't have to run in fear of the devil. We don't have to live paralyzed by panic over the devil. Because we know that ultimately, as 1 John 4.4 4 tells us, you are of God, little children. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've overcome them by faith in Christ. Remember what I said? You're in the hands of God. But you better treat him with respect. You better treat the devil with respect because he has the ability to do damage. And I noticed something else. I'll go, I'll, I won't go back to Animal Planet, but it's always the old... Uh, or the distracted animals. You know, you'll get some antelope that's out there. The rest of the herd's alert, you know. And he's out there, you know, grazing. He strays away from the herd, not watching. Hey, that's the one. That's the one that uses the line will single out and say, that's a good target there. Hey, guess what? You get a Christian who's drifting out of church. You get a Christian who's strayed away from the Bible. You get a Christian who doesn't hang with Christ, other Christians to be encouraged and admonished in the Word, and they're kind of out there in the world to do, 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 do. I think I'll try a little of this. Go bar hopping here. Go to a wild party there. And Satan is, oh boy, this is easy. Oh God, that's a good target there. Don't make yourself a target for the devil. Be vigilant, sober. Stay close in the herd, the family of God. And that's what David is trying to help us to see. Like David, though, we can trust totally in the Lord. We can lean upon Him because God will supply everything we need. God will see us through these times, and God is able to do that. But I, I think it's interesting. David says, my soul, is in verse 4, is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, their tongues a sharp word. But look at the turn. Look at the turn in the tone. In verse 5, yet in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the, the danger and the threat, David is offering praise to God. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all above all the earth. Look what he says in verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down, bowed down. Listen, David acknowledges it's wearisome. 
It's wearisome when people are constantly bombarding you and the devil is constantly tempting you and setting traps for you. He says, look, it does wear down. But look what he says. I thought it was interesting. When he talks about, he says, they have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. The very trap, the very trap that they had set for David would come back on them. And oftentimes that's what God will do. He will take the very things that people are using to harm us and He will turn it back on them. In Psalms 7.15 and Psalm 9.15, we see that. I think about it in the book of Esther. You remember the book of Esther? And she was blessed by God. This Jewish young woman was blessed to be the queen of Persia. What a high and elevated state of honor. And yet there was a plot by an evil man by the name of Haman to destroy all the Jews. And it came to Esther's attention. And, and, and Haman hated uh, Esther's uncle Mordecai and because Mordecai was a Jew. And, and so Haman had tricked the king into to con- sentencing Mordecai to hang. And the king fell for it. And at the end of the story, when Esther revealed and exposed Haman for who he was, this treacherous enemy of the queen's people, the king was furious. And one of the king's servants says, Oh, look at there. Haman just finished the the gallows to hang Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Oh, we hang him on it. And so Haman ended up getting hung on the very gallows he'd intended to use against one of God's faithful servants. Let me tell you something. God gets the last word. God is absolutely in control. When you think that things are going bad and, and maybe God is not noticing or he's not in, on his throne, listen, dear friend, you've got to wait to see the end of the story. God is in control and he will turn things back on those who are enemies of his people. Well, let's move further because I want you to see the believer's praise as we move further here and beginning in verse 7. The believer's praise. Remember what I said? The lamentation oftentimes begins with a, uh, a somber note of, of concern and, and prayer, a plea to God, but then ultimately ends up praising God. Here we go. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Why is he repeating that? Because he wants God to know how he perceives his faith and trust in God. Listen, steadfast means to be firmly fixed, to be immovable. He says, God, as far as I'm concerned, my heart is fixed, locked in, solid on you. My trust is totally in you. And he says, and I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. When he talks about his glory, he's talking about his very soul. That part of us that is our rational being, our intelligence, our emotional being, the soul of a person, that which is created in the image of God to ultimately give glory to God. That's the part of him that he's speaking to. He's saying, awake my glory. Awake lute and harp or lyre in yours if you've got a different translation. In other words, get the, get the instruments cranked up. Tune up the band. He says, we're going to praise the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because just a couple of verses ago, he's talking about ravenous, evil lions and running for his life. And yet in the midst of the pain and, and the struggle, 
He's giving praise to God. Listen to what he says in verse 8. I know this is for all the morning people. I will awaken the dawn. All right, morning people. That's us. We're the ones that look at the, at the horizon at 5 in the morning and, and say, oh, yippee, the sun's getting, to get ready, getting ready to come up. And oh, what a glorious morning. Oh, what a beautiful sunrise. And then our not-so-morning people, family members, will say, would you pipe it down, please? So some of us wake up the morning and some take care of the sunset. <laughs> but he's saying, oh, listen, I can't wait. I can't wait till morning comes. I want to awaken the dawn so I can praise my God and give Him glory. In verse 9, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Wow. Talk about having a steadfast heart for God. You know, James tells us in his epistle, in James chapter 1, verse, verses 2 through 3, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As I said, David wrote this as a fugitive. He wrote it on the run, probably wrote it in a dark cave with candlelight, Listen, he wasn't in ideal circumstances. He was still in the midst of the battle. He still had danger all around him. And how in the world is it possible in a moment like that that he could be praising God and exalting God and seeking the glory of God? It's faith. The same way that we will. The same way that we can. It's faith. I remember seeing or hearing the song some years ago and I think in the lyrics it said something to the effect that sometimes the Lord will calm the storm but then other times he will calm his child and let the storm rage on either way it's trust in God and that's what it was for David and, and that's the way it should be for us. Trust in our trust in the Lord in times of adversity. The world won't understand. When you're laying there and you're sick or you've got a loved one that's, that's deathly ill or you just got, lost your job or you had a financial crisis to hit you or some terrible thing happened in your life and somehow you muster up the ability to say, I praise the Lord. I trust the Lord. My faith is in God. Somehow, someway, I pray that God will get glory through this experience. I pray that God will strengthen my faith that I won't do or say anything that would be harmful to His wonderful name. Listen, let me tell you something. Those who don't walk the walk of faith won't understand, but I'll tell you who will understand. Your Heavenly Father who is watching every step you make when you choose. And it is a choice. It is a choice of faith whether you're going to sit around and have a pity party or look to blame it on somebody else or, or seek to just go inward and become introverted or you can turn your eyes towards heaven and say, Lord, I may not understand, but I trust you. 
Lord, yes, it is painful. I confess it. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. But I trust you. And Lord, I pray that in all that I experience and go through, that you will receive the glory. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's not just the good times. It's not just when things go our way. It's not just when people like us and everything is coming up roses that we give glory to God. Let me tell you something, dear brother, sister. It's in those dark valleys. It's in those painful, hard times in your life when you choose to lift up the name of God and trust Him. And I don't think anybody better exemplifies that than the Apostle Paul. And I want to close with a familiar passage out of 2 Corinthians. Paul is drawing close to the end of his ministry. And you know Paul's experienced all kinds of beatings and falsely, false accusations and imprisonments and shipwrecks. And I mean you just name it. Snake bites. And, 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 and ultimately knew he would lose his head literally because of his faith when he stood before the emperor Nero. Paul says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. I say hallelujah and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And Paul says, as I suffer here on this earthly journey, it's not for naught, it's not in vain. Because as I suffer and the faith of others is being encouraged, as I suffer and others are coming to Christ, as I suffer and the kingdom of God is expanding, then people are offering thanks to God. And as they give thanksgiving to God for His faithfulness and His grace and His mercy, then Paul says, then God is being glorified. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the essence of the message. It's even when we struggle in these dark times and painful times, you have a golden opportunity to exercise the faith that God gives us to look towards heaven with faith, with a steadfast heart, and say, no matter what, God, it's for your glory. It's for your glory.